Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 214, Has Bauckham Clarified His Divine Identity Theory? Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, we'll hear the rest of the presentation we heard the first part of last week. This is Dr. Richard Bauckham presenting to a meeting of analytic theologians. Last week, I gave a lot of commentary as I tried as hard as I could to try to interpret what he was saying. This time, my comments will be more brief. Again, I've edited this a little bit for length. I've cut out a couple of questions that were seemingly not too relevant. So first, we'll hear from his responder. Then we'll hear his response to the responder, and then Q&A time, as I said, slightly edited. First off then, Professor Jeremy Begbie, a theologian at Duke University. Thank you so much. Yes, I should make it clear, I do have an affiliated post at Cambridge, but my main employer is Duke University, just in case this recording gets to Duke and someone thinks I've been fired. <laughs> it's all right, folks. <laughs> Thank you so much, Richard. It's been a pleasure to read this, not only because of its clarity, in the way it doesn't overstate its case, but also because it includes nothing substantial in which I can disagree. For many years, Richard has been commending the language of identity as a way of explicating and articulating New Testament Christology. The New Testament holds to what is best understood as a Christology of divine identity, he argues, according to which Jesus the Messiah is included in the unique identity of the one God of Israel. The fresh material in this paper, as Richard made clear, is an ex- I, think I see as an expansion and clarification of that central concept of identity applied to Christology, drawing above all on Paul Ricoeur. His interest is in unique, personal, or hypostatic identity, specifically the combination of sameness, if identity, and self-constancy through time, if identity. This is a combination applicable to persons and analogously to the God of Israel and Jesus Christ. Richard is not saying that, as I understand it, ipse and identity cancels identity, but that it should take the conceptual lead, the what is always the what of the who. As expected, the paper is a model of no-nonsense lucidity without so much as a whiff of waffle, <laughs> so to speak, but at the same time leaves much open and unresolved. Perhaps if all New Testament exegetes aspire to writing best-selling children's stories, Richard, they might find their own writing taking on a similar mixture of clarity and mystery or open-endedness. But I invite Richard to continue the process of expansion and clarification with respect to two issues, or two sets of issues. The first concerns the difficulties he sees in the category of nature and with its essence as deployed in Nicene and post-Nicene theology. In this paper, the heart of the suspicion seems to be that a fixation on nature discourse gives priority to the what over the who. He believes this will distort our reading of the monotheism of Second Temple Judaism and the Hebrew Bible, where the priority is reversed. And along with this, it will encourage the anachronistic split between ontology and function. In other writings, Richard fills this out by saying that although the Nicenes made possible the affirmation of God as Father, Son, and Spirit, they are unable to do adequate justice to the revelation of divine identity in a temporally extended human life in history. And in some places that gets underlined with respect to the death of Jesus, the identification of God with one who suffered and died as God forsaken. And so I ask, have I rightly summarized the dangers of nature language as you see them? Or are you also suspicious of nature language because of its patristic connotations of strict indivisibility? For they would seek for the way it would seem to pull against an irreducible Trinitarianism. Now that provokes a second area of questions concerning the specifically Trinitarian implications of this Christological argument. Richard hints at these, of course, towards the end of the paper, in speaking of, I quote, complexity within divine identity or, quote, mutual loving faithfulness between father and son. 
To what extent, Richard, do you believe Ricoeur's account of personal identity is applicable to the distinct hypostases of the Trinity, who are, as you put it, quote, analogous to a plurality of intensely interrelated subjects, unquote? Or do you want to reserve it for the Godhead as, quote, analogous to a human individual? If you do apply this category to each of the three, what happens to the category of divine identity in the process? You begin to hint at that in points three and four of the paper. You speak about the identity of the Son. Let me come at this another way. You want to say that Jesus belongs to the identity of God or is included in the identity of God, but also that God is not exhaustively Jesus. In other words, that the reality of God is not exhausted by the reality of the Son, whether incarnate or not. In God Crucified, relating to 1 Corinthians 8, 6, you write, quote, the unique identity of the one God consists of the one God, the Father, and the one Lord, his Messiah. But with reference to the same passage, understandably, you observe that Paul never simply asserts that Jesus just is God. That would indeed compromise monotheism. Or again, in this paper, you write, quote, both Israel and Jesus are, in a sense, identified with God, but only Jesus is identified as God. In other words, both participate in the divine life, but in different ways. You go on, very tellingly, to say, we perhaps still lack sufficiently robust and unambiguous terminology for this difference. I long for the day, I look forward to it, when theologians discover completely unambiguous <laughs> terminology. But in the meantime, I think we can say that Ricoeur's concept of personal identity here does seem to be creaking a little. To put very bluntly, if we are to say God identifies with the God forsaken, what does it mean to say that someone could be forsaken by another whose identity he already shares? <clears throat> now at this point, someone will draw on the work of a number of analytic theologians who have written on the matter of identity in relation to the Trinity. Indeed, some of them are here and may well be sharpening their modal tools as I speak. <laughs> we consider the relation of the incarnate Son to the Godhead, they ask, can we find a way beyond the false polarity that runs either this is a part-whole relation, the Son is part of or portion of the Godhead, and the language of inclusion could, of course, wrongly suggest that, or is it a relation of absolute numerical identity? Both are surely unacceptable on New Testament grounds. Some suggest we make a distinction between absolute numerical identity and relative identity. And some have developed this into something that's come to be known as Constitution Trinitarianism, in which it is held that one could have sameness without numerical identity. In any case, my question is, Richard, have you come across ways that advance the concept of identity that you feel are appropriate to the double pressure of the New Testament you highlight at the close, namely to speak of God's identity as, quote, analogous to a human individual, and, as you put it, a God who is, quote, analogous to plurality of intensely interrelated <coughs> subjects. Of course, Richard, at this point, you may well want to throw up your hands and refuse to enter the debate like Theresa May before an election, <laughs> and refuse to incriminate yourself and plead the theological fifth, so to speak. But I'm not sure that's an option. That leads me to a closing remark. It relates to the principal issue of the first session of the conference. It seems quite appropriate and important to ask, how can the identity categories of the New Testament be articulated in the terms of contemporary philosophy of identity? But the harder question, perhaps the more important one, is how might these texts, in all their stubborn awkwardness, reform our category of personal identity? And that, I take it, is one of the reasons we need an institute for analytic and exegetical theology, and one of the reasons, Richard, we need people like you. <laughs>
importance. So God's personal characteristics are more important or more central to ancient Jewish thinking about God than our ideas about the divine nature. Well, sure. Of course, it's hard to see how we're going to get any theological payoff out of a point like that. Toward the end of his remarks, Dr. Begbie raises a couple of challenges to Dr. Bauckham, and I think maybe the more important among them could be put like this. Do you think that God is a single self, or do you think God, that is the triune God, is multiple selves? Which is it? Because you're applying the category of personal identity. This is our concept of a self remaining the same through time. You're applying that to God. Then you turn right around and you say God is like a group of selves, so which is it? And the quote, persons of the Trinity, are they really persons? So if Jesus is just God himself or a mode of God, how could he forsake himself? If there's some kind of forsaking on the cross, isn't that a relationship between two different selves? There's the forsaker and the forsakee. Or at least the second one's complaining that they feel like they've been forsaken to another person, to another self. So, which is it? When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bauckham's reply to Dr. Begbie. some of these issues. Um, the, the, the point about, which I did try and confront very briefly in the last um, paragraph or so, uh, the point about the analogy of God as a single individual, the analogy of God as three related individuals. Um, the way I tried to get somewhere towards resolving that is to explain that when we think of God as three persons, we are thinking of three persons each of whose identity is constituted by that person's relationship to the others. And that seems to me to be a a kind of uh, interrelationship which goes much further than the interrelationships of human persons. You know, the the whole debate about social trinity and such, right, nowadays. I I think we must speak of interpersonal relationships within the trinity, but we must um, qualify that by saying that these interpersonal relationships are, are much more intensely interpersonal than those that human individuals enjoy. So uh, I think in something like that, I can begin to understand how the biblical revelation, as it were, moves on from portraying God by analogy with a single individual to a more complex revelation of God as, as three persons which, of course, arose out of the uh, arose out of the incarnation, and in defence of a, a sort of degree of social Trinitarianism, I was always say that the notion of the Trinity is rooted in the relationship of Jesus to his Father, an inter, in, 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 interpersonal relationship. So we have to speak of interpersonal relationships within the Trinity. Hmm. Is that because there really are interpersonal relationships in the Trinity? He's definitely saying that the Trinity is analogous to three selves in relationship, in a super-duper close relationship. Yeah, but that's still consistent with the Trinity being a single self. So he immediately adds this. Which is then understood as being in the divine relationship. In the divine relationship. Okay, so in all of this, this reality that's analogous to three super-duper closely related individual beings or selves, 
all of that is understood to be in the divine relationship. Uh, I'm not sure what he means by that, but I think he means that they're all part of one life, which is the life of the one self, which is God. So they're all in God, and God is still a self. So within that self, there are three somethings that are like selves, and they're like selves who are super close to one another. Okay, but that still sounds like fundamentally a one-self trinity theory to me. And I'm none too clear about what he thinks the, quote, persons of the trinity to be. It's a very beautiful on the point about nature. Um, it was always a question of priority of identity over nature. I, mean, I, I always say that in texts of any length, I've always said that Jew, Jewish writers do recognize what we call it the divine nature, something called eternity. Uh, you can't really think about God as creator of things without conceiving it of eternity, God's sovereign rule over all things, his omnipotence. Um, <coughs> I mean, these, these things. Uh, of their Jewish talk about God. And of course, some Jews have picked up a lot more Greek philosophical language, but on the whole, not. Um, but but, but I, I think these elements of nature are, uh, as were included in the larger category of identity. And the reason I was kind of insisting on this from a Christological perspective is that if we look for indications of Jesus' divine nature in the usual now, Dr. Bauckham just said something really astounding there, and I don't want the significance of it to escape you. To me, one of the murkiest areas in the development of Christology in mainstream Christianity is the second century. And somehow or other, this sort of argument got to be popular by the end of the second century, at least in elite circles. And as a consequence of this popularity, it became part of common sense, at least to these people, that a, quote, mere man Christology is just obviously wrong. Okay, the arguments go something like this. The way you detect a nature, and nature here means an individual thing, the way you detect a nature is by a characteristic effect of it. Now, clearly there's a human nature within the life of the man Jesus because you see weakness and hunger and crying and worry and sleep. These are ordinary effects of a human nature, that type of being, a human being. But in the life of Jesus, you also see miracles, and you also see incredibly profound divine teaching. And these things can only be effects of a divine nature. And so, clearly, there was a divine nature, that is to say, a divine being there as well in the life of Christ. Now, the obvious reply to that is, well, of course there's a divine being there. That's God. Look at the gospel according to John. Jesus explicitly credits God, that is to say, the Father, with his miracles and with his divine teaching. And it's God in all the gospels who gives Jesus his authority and who makes Jesus Messiah and who raises Jesus and exalts Jesus. Oh yeah, there's a divine nature there, all right. If by that you mean there's a divine being. And we know who that is as well. But anyway, these ancient arguments seem just absurdly overbroad. They absurdly overreach. I mean, if this is supposed to tell us that Jesus is both God and man, or both human and divine, by the same sort of argument, you could prove that Moses or Elijah was both human and divine. But we don't want to do that. It's just a commonplace in Jewish thinking that God can empower his servants, his human servants, to do and to say miraculous things. Now, some apologists nowadays, people who aren't very good at arguing, frankly, will say, oh, come on, there's obviously divine nature there. Jesus has got to be God. Look, he's omniscient and omnipotent. And to prove that he's omniscient and omnipotent, they'll just point to an instance where Jesus has some supernatural knowledge, such as knowing about what's going on when he's far away. Well, yeah, but prophets and Ordinary Christians in the New Testament do things like that. That's not a mark of omniscience at all. It's just a case of supernatural knowledge. And they'll point to Jesus' 
raising the dead or healing the sick as proof that he's omnipotent. But this is just a laughably horrible argument. You can't prove that Peter and Paul are omnipotent in that way, right? Doesn't work for Jesus either. Okay, but Dr. Bauckham isn't doing that because when he looks at the New Testament, he sees that there really is no observable effect there that could only be attributed to a being with the divine nature as traditionally understood. That is, Jesus doesn't do or say anything that would require him to be omnipotent and omniscient, uncreated, eternal, and so on. So he just boldly throws aside this whole ancient tradition of saying, well, look, it's just obvious there's a divine nature at work there, because look at the effects. He throws that aside, and he comes up with something new. So from Catholic tradition, he has retained what he calls the highest possible Christology, and he badly wants to find the highest possible Christology in the New Testament. He sees as a New Testament scholar that you can't get it from the New Testament by these old arguments that I mentioned, so he comes up with a new argument to get the same conclusion. Um, but what I think are the decisive, in terms of Jewish theology, the decisive implications of Jesus' inclusion from identity are uh, aspects of God's exclusive role in relation to the whole creation, um, soul creator and soul, soul Lord. I actually think when early Christians included Jesus in the divine rule over all things, Jesus, it was this notion of Jesus as seated on the cosmic throne in which God governs all things. They were actually in Jewish theological terms, including Jesus in divine identity, much more clearly than if they simply said Jesus is God um, or some, something of that kind. God is very ambiguous. Jesus is God, could mean three or four different things. Um, Jesus sitting on the cosmic throne of the universe can mean only one thing. He participates in God's unique divinity. Wow, I'd like to hear more about that, the three or four things that Jesus being called God could mean. I agree, by the way. That's a very important point, actually. To us, the word God is practically a proper name, like the name Donald Trump is a proper name. And so it's natural for us to assume that God just unambiguously refers to one individual. But the term theos in ancient Greek was a lot more flexible than that. It could mean God, it could mean a God. It's a term that could be applied to angels and to men in various contexts. So he's absolutely right that calling Jesus God could mean many different things. So in his view, and I completely agree, it's not really to the point to just dig hard into the New Testament and find a small handful of passages where possibly Jesus is being referred to as, quote, God. That's interesting. That's part of the data that have to be accounted for. But that doesn't tell you that Jesus is God himself. It's consistent with many different understandings of Jesus. But what isn't consistent with many understandings of Jesus, according to Dr. Bauckham, is that Jesus is shown to be related to creation as only God can be related to creation, so that he's the sole creator, and also that Jesus is the sole and ultimate sovereign ruler. So in his view, the New Testament clearly unambiguously says that Jesus is the creator of the cosmos in the sense in which, according to Jewish tradition of that time, only God can be creator, and he's in charge, he's top dog, he's the final boss, and that is something that only God can be, according to Jewish tradition of that time. So you could kind of sum up all of Dr. Bauckham's work on this topic as, if you understand how Jews thought about God, you'll see that Jesus has to, in some sense, be God, or be in God, or maybe part of God, or anyway, something that's super high Christology, and that's consistent with Nicene Catholic tradition. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this thesis, and maybe I'll say more in a future episode of the Trinity's podcast, but for now, just this. Let's suppose he's right that the New Testament says that Jesus was involved in the creation. And let's suppose that at all times and places, 
Jesus is involved in divine sovereignty. I don't think I have to remind this audience which passages he has in mind that can be read that way. Yeah, but look at every single one of those passages in its own context. Take the creation passages. It looks like it's saying that God created all things through Jesus. So then Jesus would not be the ultimate source of creation, and he wouldn't be a creator in the sense in which the one God is the creator. He's a tool, so to speak, of the one God. This is how all the ancient subordinationists who bought into Logos theory thought about it. This was the Catholic mainstream for a couple hundred years. It was still going strong at the time of Eusebius, and it was people like this who fought against the new formulations of Nicaea, which they thought were confused and confusing, and moreover, unauthorized by the New Testament or by earlier Catholic tradition. Take passages in which Jesus is said to be over all things, or to sit on God's throne, or just kind of to be in charge. Yeah, but that's still under God, right? He's not in charge of God. God put him in this position in these New Testament texts. So, being sovereign in the sense in which the one God is sovereign, no, Jesus isn't that according to the New Testament. God, in Jewish tradition, doesn't have sovereignty given to him. God doesn't come in second place in the authoritative hierarchy of reality, but Jesus does in the New Testament. So there's a lot more to say about this thesis and just quite what sort of sovereignty and what sort of creation the New Testament actually gives to Jesus. These two basic facts that I'm mentioning about New Testament thinking about God and Jesus I think, can be left aside or ignored in the presence of Dr. Bauckham's very impressive historical scholarship. He's read in the original languages dozens, probably hundreds of things that most people have never heard of from ancient times. And he's a close and careful reader, and I appreciate some of the things that he has to say and some of his insights in reading these texts, but man, the New Testament's pretty clear in those two points that I just said. And if those two points are right, that just cuts off his argument strategy at the knees. When the Trinity's podcast returns, question and answer time. incorporate the Holy Spirit into the identity of the Father or perhaps the identity of the Son, or would you, do you think we need to be doing something slightly different um, with the Holy Spirit, um, often known as the self-effacing member of the Trinity or the one without quite so much character? Um, do you think we need to be doing the same move, or is there a distinct way to get from two to three? I, I, w- I wouldn't want to make the same move, partly because um, Jewish thinking about God already has a notion of, of the divine spirit, which is being, as it were, taken into this unfolding um, new insight into God. Um, so I would have to talk about the way it happens, I think, I think differently. But I certainly don't want to include the spirit in either the identity of God and the Son. Um, but, it, I mean, it, it is tricky, because I don't think the distinct identity of the Spirit emerges as clearly and in such a widespread way across all the texts in the New Testament, as, as is the case with Christology. But in some cases it really does. I mean, I think in the, in the account of the Paraclete in John's Gospel, uh, I, I think actually the two, the, two part, the two parts of the New Testament become that are most clearly Trinitarian, or John's Gospel and the Book of Revelation in very different ways portray this 
threefoldness in God, which is a, um, an interrelatedness of, 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 of three. But I, I mean, you know, one needs to say greatly more about it than that, but thank you. So John and Revelation are the most clearly, quote, Trinitarian books in the New Testament. This goes back to a distinction which I discuss in a whole chapter of my book called What is the Trinity? It's the distinction between the word Trinity as meaning triad, just the Father, Son, and Spirit, whatever those are, and the word Trinity as meaning the tripersonal God of Nicene Orthodoxy since the 4th century. And so the word Trinitarian inherits this ambiguity. Trinitarian can mean just having to do with God, God's Son, and God's Spirit, in which case the New Testament is just incredibly Trinitarian all over the place, and I'm a Trinitarian, and any Christian is a Trinitarian, really. Whatever their theology is, if it's Christian, they're going to be Trinitarian, because it's going to have something to do with God, God's Son, and God's Spirit. So there's a trivial point there in calling New Testament books like John and Revelation Trinitarian, but then there's an incredibly controversial point to call anything in the first century Trinitarian, meaning having to do with a tripersonal God. Well, I think that's just straight up an anachronism. There isn't any such being mentioned anywhere in any first century writing, neither mentioned nor assumed nor implied. Okay, I'll stop my rant and go on to question two, which is by the excellent Roman Catholic analytic theologian, Dr. Timothy Paul. I'm Tim Paul, and I'm from the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota in the United States. It's a follow-up on the second point that Professor Bigby raised for you. I fear that the theory you give right here of Christ's identity might entail that the Godhead can't be atemporal. Uh, that might be a benefit for some, but I... Uh, I don't find it a benefit. And here's how the argument goes. You say that if the identity refers to continuity of self through the flux of time and change, and you say elsewhere that it helps explain the change of a thing through time, change of a person through time, and you say you need both idem and ipsa identity to secure personal identity. My fear is this, that neither the Father nor the Spirit is something that goes through time, the flux of time and change, not the atemporality of you. But if that's the case, then neither one of those two individuals could have the identity, because that requires sameness through flux of time and change. And so you can only have one thing that counts as a who in the, uh, in the Trinity, if the view was correct. And so you can only have one person there, not three persons there. So it looks to me like this ipsa view precludes the possibility of having a temporality. And I wonder if I got it right there, if so it would count as a benefit or a cost. Thanks. I think what you're saying is that the concept of personal identity I'm using is a notion of narrative identity, which occurs through time and change. But I would ground that understanding of God's narrative identity in the Old Testament. And it seems to me the Old Testament tells a story in which God is profoundly involved. Mm -hmm. I think I want to say about God and time that God is not limited to time, but God may participate in time. He's not excluded from time. Not limited, but not excluded. So the, the whole Trinity is deeply involved in, in the events of, uh, of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. I, I, don't, I don't want to accept all the spirit from having a narrative, but in the end it's a narrative identity of Trinitarian God. Um, in which all three persons, in different ways, are involved in the story of God's relationship with the world. Right, so really the Trinity is a single self. As that single self interacts with the world, he does so in various ways, and among those ways are the three persons of the Trinity. They're all just him, but they're ways of living, being, and or interacting with the creation. So it's a one-self view. So then, really, there can't be interpersonal relationships between any two persons of the Trinity in his view. Or so it seems to me. The third question I've omitted, I think it's just based on misunderstanding. The next question, though, is way more interesting. I had a question about something you said towards the end, uh, before, before opening up for questions. Um, 
You said that it's unambiguous to say that uh, Jesus is sitting uh, on the throne, sort of judging, whereas saying Jesus is God is more ambiguous than keeping privacy than anything. Would that mean that a very strong identification between Jesus and the, and God is automatically implied? Uh, and if so, I mean, I've looked into uh, First Enoch and the, the parables of Enoch, similar to Enoch, which I know is a very contested writing, Jewish or Christian, and so on. But it is what seems clear in it is that the chosen one, or the Messiah slash uh, chosen one and son of man, is exalted and on the throne of God. So, uh, along with him, is that? Does that mean that they also have a sort of Trinitarian understanding of God? Yeah. And can, can I first also that you know, the, the throne of God, which God governs the whole cosmos, the throne of the sun is the universe as they depict it, you know, high above everything, for which God governs the whole universe. There are probably only three texts in Jewish literature which can be argued God is sharing the throne with anyone else. I don't think any of them work really, but I don't think it would spoil my case if one or two eccentric. Jewish writers thought something different, you know, uh, uh, I'm setting the, uh, the development of technology against the, the genuine Jewish background, you know, it doesn't have to be unanimous, but in the parables of Enoch, I think the throne is set up on earth for judgment, as I think also in Daniel 7, it's the throne set for judgment, thrones plural in Daniel 7, therefore thrones plural in parables of Enoch, interpreting Daniel 7 very, very much. And I think probably we should read the Son of Man as having his own throne rather than sitting on God's throne. Now, it's problematic because we only have the text in Ethiopic, and it's a question of manuscript readings. And I'm dearly hoping that when um, Lauren Stuckenbrook produces his new edition, one Enoch, based on far more textual manuscript evidence. I'm really hoping that it comes out that it's on a man's throne. This is where I'm fallible and subject to, uh, subject to uh, disproof. But I would say, because I know, I know some people know um, Daniel Kirk's book, and probably more people know about it. You know, he seems to think that a human figure sitting on the cosmic throne of God is more or less the same thing as a Messiah sitting on the throne of Jerusalem or something like that. In other words, he doesn't, what, what I mean when I say that Jesus shares God's universal rule, he actually participates in God's rule over all other rule. You know, Colossians is a far above all authority and rule. Not, uh, and that's why I have a little sentence to guard against that in, in my text today, but you know, uh, of course there are angels and humans who rule over other angels and humans. It's the ultimate total sovereignty of God, uh, which is the thing that's unique to God. And, and that is what is symbolized by Jesus uh, sitting on the cosmic throne. Mitch Mallory coming from Chicago. I think it's fair to say, as a conference on the incarnation, that most people won't agree with Kurt's thesis. But the question I have is, what do you make of his notion that Jesus is working with a fully human agency? So that things such as walking on water, feeding the 5,000, all things that he expects the disciples to do as well. That he's not tapping into what you would refer to earlier as the divine nature in order to do all of these things. Uh, yeah, uh, we've got to our first point, of course, Kirk does say that there was incarnation in John, no, so, and, yes. but, you know, it's just not in the synoptics. The problem I have is he makes the, what he regards as the Christology of the synoptics seem so entirely adequate to Christology, one can't understand why one also needs incarnation. And I do think that the narrative of incarnation and, and following in Philippians 2 really ought to be our key to this. You know, and there is a distinction between being in the form of God, taking the form of the servant, and exalting to the divine throne. Um, and the Gospels, until the very end, are depicting Jesus in the form of the servant. And so, when he walks on the water, of course he's not exercising the divine omnipotence to walk you know, on anything. Or, you know, it's, a, it's a little miracle. 
Right. Um, you think to the owl, so, you know. Um, but I do think the Gospel writers write about it in such a way as to evoke the Old Testament passages which say that, you know, God looks on at creation, God. There's the secret message part. Only God. And, you know, Mark's, Mark's rhetorical question at the end, you know, who is this that he waves and the wind obey him? Jewish art is only God. Wow. So the author of Mark was not competent to state his main point, which is that Jesus is God or belongs to the unique divine identity, etc. Actually, I think he tells you who Jesus is. It's in the scene where Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is, and they say they think he's God's Messiah. When we're reading the Gospels, we can't try to outsmart the author. But he's telling the story in a way that points forward to the exalted Christ on the divine Says who? So these Where in the text is that? Are not, they're not being manifestly God in, in the sense of divine glory and power. They're being manifestly God just in the other way of, of being manifestly God's love and God's humility and the stuff that Philippians is talking about. In Philippians, the Son is just as much God in his humility, suffering and death, as he is in his exaltation of glory. But the, the Gospels are telling the story of his humility, suffering and death with pointers towards the divine identity. That, otherwise, you know, I think um, he has to be identifiable as more than a human being, even though he's in the form of certain Really, he has to be identifiable as more than a human being. Why? Presumably, he's got some Catholic assumptions there that for some reason Jesus could not save us unless he was also in some sense divine. He's more than plain old human being, all right, in the Synoptic Gospels. He's the Messiah. That's a big deal. When the Trinity's podcast returns... A long-winded question from the famous N.T. Wright. Those who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. 
uh, in which case you then need the spirit in order to complete that particular circle. Yeah, um, I'm not going to comment on the meaning of this case for but yes, I think, I think the faithfulness, I mean, I said in passing, the faithfulness, I think God's, God fulfills his promise through the faithfulness of the Father and the Son, the mutual faithfulness of the Father and the Son, in case of something like that. And of course that reflects the, um, the faithfulness that is prominent in God's character description, Exodus 34, all through the biblical narrative. Uh, I mean, I think it's very, very interesting that he recurred without any, you know, he's not referring to God in the Bible, he's just talking about human identity, but faithfulness as the way in which we maintain, it's so prominent in Kerr, uh, and quite um, completely independently of Kerr, I think. So it, it's interesting how faithfulness comes up and so importantly, those accounts of identity. And of course, you know, God's faithfulness to his people, to his word and to his people in the Old Testament, um, corresponding Israel's faithfulness to God. Where we differ, I think, is that I don't think God, I don't think Israel's faithfulness to God in itself was ever intended or could possibly have been the salvation of the world. I think the salvation of the world required the incarnation and the faithfulness of the divine Son and the divine Father. But the, but the faithfulness of the Son identified as a human being, as a Jew, and, and, and all the rest of it. I've edited out a question here from the British analytic theologian, Dr. Alan Torrance. He asks whether Bauckham's views entail that we have to deny the classical doctrine of divine simplicity, and Bauckham says some stuff but really doesn't say either way. So, next question. Uh, thanks for your favorite. I'm Williams from Durham. The category of, of identity in your work seems to be used to communicate the unity between the Father and Son. But can it also bear the weight of communicating the necessary distinction between the Father and the Son, if indeed the Son's divinity is constituted by the act of generation itself? If the category of identity cannot bear that weight, what other categories might we need to retain this distinction and therefore to um, withhold against modalist, modalistic tendencies? Let me translate this one before Dr. Bauckham answers. Why isn't your view modalism? That is to say, why doesn't what you say in all of this make the Father and Son something less than two selves, but just something like ways the one divine self is? Here's the entirety of Dr. Bauckham's answer. Uh, we, we need to consider the relationship, of course. Again, the, the sort of recurring insight of personal identities as relation uh, means that, you know, identity in God is relational. So that um, father and son are distinguished, they, you know, they are distinguished and united by their relationship. Um, you know, the, 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 can one say this that the incarnation, as it, in, in, in the sense of God taking the form of a human life in relation to God, is possible because there is a relationship in God. So it's the identity, the inner divine identity. Uh, played out in a human relationship of <coughs> Jesus and his life and the spirit of course. So that's the end of the session. Do you think that Dr. Bauckham clarified his thesis that in the New Testament Jesus is included in the divine identity? I have to say that I found his presentation and the interactions afterwards a little bit helpful and I've continued to read stuff by Dr. Bauckham, particularly his interactions with Dr. Kirk about interpreting Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. I think I understand Dr. Bauckham now. He basically holds to a one-self trinity. He's none too clear about what the persons are. But anyway, there's something within the one divine identity, which is to say, within the one divine self. I agree that God is a single self, However, that self is the Father in the New Testament. It's not the three of them put together. I think his attempt to reinvent the Christological wheel is interesting and certainly creative. And he brings to bear a really impressive and heavy background in the history of ancient religion and ancient religious thought. But the question for a Christian is, does he make the case as concerns the New Testament? Is he right that this idea of 
being included in the divine identity is the key that unlocks New Testament teaching about Jesus and God. As I said before, I think the argument, once we get past all the historical fireworks, is remarkably weak because the highest sort of creatorship and sovereignty that you could attribute to Jesus based on the New Testament are still derivative and subordinate. That is to say, Jesus is still under God, and if God created all things in the Genesis creation through pre-human Jesus, then the pre-human Jesus is not the ultimate source of all things. God is. As I said before, maybe I'll say something more about this in a future Trinities podcast. I'm still reading and still thinking. I hope these couple of episodes have been helpful to you. This week's thinking music has been the track Spastic Mumblings by Jesse Spillane. As always, on the blog post for this episode, there's a link where you can listen to or download that entire track. We got a new rating in the iTunes store for the United States. It's from a user named Adrian Komen. Their subject line is Great Podcasts. They give us five stars. They say, Excellent content. Thank you for interviewing some very good scholars. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. And thanks for the rating and the review. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.